Welcome back again, everyone. Laszlo Montgomery here. The China History Podcast, Part 8 today. The Chinese Warlord Era. You can be sure everyone in China has had enough of these warlords. And starting in this episode, it's time to take them down. But before we go there, allow me to pull over once again and introduce you to one more major heavy of the warlord era. This was Yan Shishan. When you think of the most well-known names from this era, Yan Shishan always makes the list. He was a marquee name from the Warlord Hall of Fame. Well, if that's true, why is it we're already eight episodes into the series and we've hardly heard his name? And it's already 1925, 1926. Where's he been hiding out? Well, Yan Shishan wasn't hiding out, and like his warlord brethren, he'd already been the master of his own province since 1917. He was the warlord of Shanxi, and in saying that, if you're familiar with that laid-back northern province, famous for its noodles and natural resources, you'll know why. If you look at a physical map of China, although Shanxi's main city of Taiyuan is only 200 miles away from Beijing, well, may as well be 2,000. Today, of course, you can take the high-speed train that runs between Taiyuan and Beijing. Two and a half to three hours is all it'll take you. But back in the 1920s and 30s and Yan Shishan's day, it was a much greater distance. Shanxi province is surrounded on all sides by mountains and rivers. The Wutai, Taihang, and Zhongtiao Mountains and of course, the Yellow River flows along the southern and western borders of the province. Historically, all these natural barriers combined kept the province somewhat isolated from what was happening in the central plain of eastern China, in Manchuria, Hebei, Henan, Shandong, and elsewhere. Tradition says it was in Shanxi where Yu the Great of the Xia Dynasty tamed the flooding rivers, and the mythical emperor Yao who Confucius admired so greatly, also from Shanxi, the land where the ancient state of Jin was located. So its relative isolation contributed significantly to keeping Shanxi from being more directly engaged in all the history and goings-on elsewhere in post-imperial China. On the one hand, Shanxi's geographic fate impeded the province's economic progress and easy access to the foreign traders who congregated in the major coastal cities and treaty ports. But, on the other hand, for Yan Shishan at least, this allowed him to keep all these rivalries and wars fought between Anhui, Zhili, Fengtian, the KMT, and the Guomingjun far from his doorstep. All that action tended to be focused south and east of Yan Shishan's realm. Yan Shishan never stayed loyal to one ally with any consistency. He changed partners wherever and whenever it benefited him. He was good at picking the right side, and although not as powerful a player as some of his fellow warlords, his support was always sought out, just like a minority party in government. So that's why we haven't heard Yan Shishan's name too much in this series. But let me tell you, he had quite an enterprise going up there in Shanxi, far from the madding crowd. He didn't turn Shanxi into a rich province, but thanks to his efforts over the 38 years he ran the place, he was certainly responsible for making it less poor. 
But he knew, despite everything that he can do, his province wasn't in the same league militarily or economically as those to the east of him. Then the terrain of Shanxi, it also wasn't terribly suited for agriculture. But Shanxi province, yeah, it was good enough for Yan Shan. That's all he wanted. He was by no means a Zhang Zolin or Wu Peifu who sought out national hegemony. So what's his story? Yan Shan was born in Xinzhou, just north of Shanxi's main city of Taiyuan, the commercial, industrial, and political center of Shanxi province. Not everyone knows this, but Shanxi was once one of the largest banking centers in China. And Yan Shan's family came from one of these well-off banking families. However, his family fell on hard times during the late Qing, and Yan Shan did what a lot of young men did. Despite his family background and high degree of education, he enrolled in one of the many military academies popping up everywhere, this one in Taiyuan. And from there, Yan Shishan did the fashionable thing to do for many a budding militarist. He, he went to Japan and continued his studies at Japanese military academies. And this five-year stint, beginning in 1904, eh, had a rather profound impact on Yan Shishan and how he later on ran his province. Like countless other educated Chinese who had their eyes opened by the achievements of Japan and the other foreign powers, he vowed to implement many of these reforms in his home country. Even with his own troops later on, he saw much in Japan's samurai legacy that he attempted to introduce. Yen Shishan's philosophy that he tried to instill in his troops and inside Shanxi melded militarism, nationalism, anarchism, democracy, capitalism, communism, individualism, imperialism, universalism, and paternalism. How's that for a combination? While studying at Japan, he met Sun Yat-sen and joined Sun's party, the Tongmenghui, or United League. He was also a close friend of fellow Shanxi native H.H. Kong, Kong Xiangxi, a KMT stalwart, finance minister, and spouse to one of the Song sisters, the oldest and brightest, Ai Ling. H.H. Kong served as an early advisor to Yan Shishan when he was just getting established up in Shanxi. Although a Sun Yat-sen ally, Yan Shishan didn't always see eye to eye with the KMT or the Southern Canton government. Sun Yat-sen's failed second revolution that we discussed in a previous episode, well, Yan Shishan didn't provide any support, and as he often did, he sat this conflict out. And to be truthful, like most of these warlords, Yan Shishan wasn't too enthusiastic about Sun Yat-sen's political ideals. And the May 4th movement, yeah, he wasn't on the side of the students and demonstrators. Let's just say that this was a typical point of view shared by most all warlords. So after returning from Japan in 1909, Yen Shishan joined the new army and got assigned to his home province. At first, Yen's loyalty was to Yuan Shikai and the Beiyang organization, but later in 1913, he ran afoul of Yen and had to keep a safe distance and bide his time until after Yen died in 1916. Yan Shishan had already taken over the role of military governor in Shanxi, and like everyone else I mentioned, he 
was one of those who, after Yuan's death, transitioned from military governor to warlord. His record shows a lot of hits and misses. Shanxi today is China's West Virginia, the land of coal. That began with Yan Shishan and his development of the province's coal and iron ore mines. He also promoted Shanxi's cotton industry and turned the province into a powerhouse in that industry. Like Feng Yuxiang, Yan Shishan tried to stamp out many old traditional practices. Cutting off cues of men still sporting the Manchu hairstyle was one of them. He also implemented a whole slew of social reforms in Shanxi that, well, for one, clamped down mercilessly on purveyors of opium and other drugs, and as well as the practice of foot binding. He also promoted basic education for women, and in 1918, he launched a program in Shanxi to educate young children. By 1923, as many as 800,000 Shanxi kids had been beneficiaries of this program. A big chunk of Shanxi's provincial budget went to education. Not to higher education, but to basic elementary schooling. Reading and writing. Hey man, you had to walk before you ran. He was also a big proponent of water conservation and tree planting, as well as the propagation of TCM, traditional Chinese medicine. Two noted organizations he called for were the Early Morning Rising Society and the Heart Cleansing Institute. The names alone can give you an idea where his head was at. Clean, disciplined living. He tried to propagate his philosophy through these institutes and built up the people's morality and positive living. He was no dogmeat general. In short, Yan Shishan knew he was the ruler and master of one of China's less prosperous provinces, and he was determined to lift his people up by embracing all that was good and useful from Japan and the West. And this was particularly true with respect to science and medicine. Thanks to Shanxi's remote location, he had been able to survive Yuan Shikai, the whole warlord era, the nationalist era, and later on Japanese invasion and civil war with the communists. He was a survivor. He was a close friend of Duan Qi Rei, but never joined the Anhui clique. He always kept Shanxi neutral. He was his own clique, and as I mentioned, even though he was friendly with Sun Yat-sen, he didn't want Sun's political ideas being implemented in his province. And for all these reasons, Yan Shishan acquired the nickname of the Model Governor, the Muofan Tujun. A lot of things went right under his leadership, but he had his share of headaches and financial crises brought on by speculation and ideas that were great and well-meaning, but not implemented well. In all the info written about Yan Shishan, he was described as solemn to the point of dour, unsmiling, very reserved in public gatherings, never laughed or revealed his inner feelings. You'd think he'd be a Feng Yuxiang type who espoused a plain and ascetic lifestyle. But Yan Shishan acquired massive amounts of wealth and lived a very luxurious lifestyle up in his home base of Taiyuan. Robin Leach would have loved him. So Yan Shishan didn't just come out of nowhere. For the preceding seven episodes, he's been playing in the background, quietly running his province and staying out of the major conflicts. As soon as we get to the northern expedition, however, as 
1927 rolls around, Yan Shishan came out of the shadows and began to play a more noticeable role in this warlord era. And as we get closer to that time, we'll revisit Yan Shishan. Let's take a quick look at what was cooking down in the south. I want to stress again, from the moment the Qing dynasty fell in 1911 up to these years we're in right now, 1925-26, there was a whole other thing going on down in the south of China with respect to the rival government based in Canton or Guangzhou. All those southern provinces had their own warlord happenings over in Yunnan, Guangdong, Guizhou, Guangxi. All this time, since the Wuchang Uprising, 1010-1911, the southern leadership hadn't been able to assemble any kind of coalition that could pose a serious challenge to these Beiyang generals. Too much time, time had been wasted since 1917 trying to unify the leadership and to resist the actions of the northern warlords. And then once Sun Yat-sen died in 1925, it thrust the southern government into yet another political crisis. Let's jump to March 20th, 1926. This is the date of the Canton coup. Jiang Kai-shek, down in Guangzhou, he was still head of the Wampoa Military Academy. He received a tip that his life was in danger and his political enemies were going to be forcibly removing him from the whole KMT organization. So Jiang didn't follow this up too much and took preemptive action against those he thought were plotting against him. The KMT left and the communists, aided and abetted, of course, by the Comintern. This sham cooperation with the Chinese communists and this whole united front idea... I mentioned this in part six. Despite all the sweet talking from the common turn, Jiang smelled a rat all along, and after this right-wing Canton coup was carried out, he put an end to that arrangement and seized control of the government and the Nationalist Army. His rival, Wang Jingwei, leader of the leftist faction of the KMT, after seeing what Jiang Kai-shek had gone and done, he picked up and went on an extended European holiday. And this move by Jiang was a serious blow to the KMT left. When the dust settled, the left wing of the Nationalist Party had been marginalized, and Jiang got to halt this slow and steady infiltration of Russians and Chinese communists into his organization. He didn't do anything violent so much as he just sidelined the communists. Jiang felt there was still a need for Soviet support with his northern expedition, so he didn't burn those bridges just yet. And as for that short-lived experiment of civilian control over the military, yeah, Jiang put an end to that too. Once this was achieved, and Jiang had officially put on the mantle of Sun Yat-sen, it was going to be left up to him and his armies to get rid of all these Jiang Zolins, Wu Peifus, Yan Shishans, Feng Yuxiangs, Jiang Tongchangs, and all these other, well, whatever you want to call them. Almost from the very beginning, going back to the death of Yuan Shikai in 1916, the solidarity of this Beiyang clique that Yuan had led started to fall apart. Between 1917 and 1926, a total of nine years, these warlords just tried wiping each other out. Then they joined together to whack a common foe, and then as soon as that was done, they'd go back to trying to kill each other again. On and on it went, year after destructive year, all over China. Not just in the north and central part of the country, down in the south too. 
And a few of these major figures, these leaders of these various cliques, not all, but they had this idea in the back of their head to try and become that, that Qin Shi Huang or Liu Bang who could best their rivals and become the last man standing to unify China into one nation with them in charge. And I spared you all the political lead-up to the Canton coup of March 1926. What's important to know for our story is that this is where Jiang Kai-shek takes the lead and becomes the one within the KMT to finally take this old idea, first discussed by Sun Yat-sen and others in the early 1920s, to take the fight to these warlords and see it through to the end. These warlords had to be toppled or won over to the side of the KMT, the Kuomintang, the Nationalist Party. So you'll start hearing more and more of Jiang from here on out. And the men, mostly getting in Jiang's way of Chinese unification, were Zhang Zolin, Wu Peifu, Yan Xishan, Zhang Zongchang, and Sun Chuanfang. These warlords in particular, and their allies, well, they held sway over the government in Beijing, in Jirli, Shandong, all of Manchuria, Henan, Hunan, Hubei, Fujian, Jiangxi, Anhui, Zhejiang, and Jiangsu. Jiang Kai-shek had his work cut out for him. So let's go back to the Canton coup in March 1926 to give you a timestamp to what was happening up north when Jiang grabbed power in this right-wing coup. The anti-Feng Tian War was just ending. You recall Zhang Zolin and Wu Peifu teamed up to overwhelm Feng Yuxiang and you know, knock him off the board for a little while. So while Jiang was making his move to take control of the KMT, Feng Yuxiang was soon about to take a brief Russian holiday. And Zhang Zolin was making himself comfortable in Beijing. On June 5, 1926, Jiang was named Commander-in-Chief, the Zongsi Ling, of the National Revolutionary Army, the NRA. And then on July 1, 1926, the realigned Canton government issued this bold proclamation that stated, quote, To protect the welfare of the people, we must overthrow all warlords and wipe out reactionary power so that we may implement the three people's principles and complete the national revolution. End quote. From this point forward, just as Sun Yat-sen had once been called, now Jiang Kai-shek became the Generalissimo. And with these favorable winds blowing in his sails, Jiang believed if there ever was a time to launch the northern expedition against the warlords... This was it. He didn't want to lose the momentum. The Northern Expedition, in its scale, in the number of casualties, and in its sheer destruction to infrastructure and private property, was perhaps the biggest military campaign carried out anywhere between the two world wars. The NRA was heavily outnumbered by troops fighting under the warlords when Chiang Kai-shek set out to fulfill his destiny on July 9th, 1926. The plan was to take Hunan first and use that as a springboard into Hubei. And of course, the grand prize in Hubei were the tri-cities that made up Wuhan. Now that meant first going head-to-head with the powerful Hunan warlord Tang Shengzhi. Tang Shengzhi was a Hunan born and raised graduate from the Baoding Military Academy and had had a very active career in the military. 
but it was in Hunan province where he had made his mark, and Tang Shengzhi was Jiang's first match. Except that Tang Shengzhi welcomed Jiang and said from now on he was on the KMT side. Yeah, he wasn't the only one, too. Others will, for their own self-serving reasons, as always, join the Northern Expedition on the NRA side and pledge their army and their loyalty to Jiang Kai-shek. And quotation marks around that word, loyalty. Besides Tang Shengzhi, there were also more than two dozen other mini-warlords scattered all around Hunan. That province was infested. The lower down the food chain you went, the less effective and more unruly these troops were. Those that didn't turn and run when they faced the NRA ended up as new recruits in Jiang's army. By June 11th, the capital, Changsha, was taken, followed by the rest of Hunan by the end of July. It had fallen on Wu Peifu's shoulders to try and hang on to Hunan, but with Tang Shengzhi defecting and troops from Guizhou and other smaller warlords given promises by Jiang for joining the KMT side, it was, it was too overwhelming of a force, and they made fast work of Wu Peifu and Hunan. They'll chase him all the way to Wuhan before he exits the fight and flees to his stronghold in Henan. And Yan Shishan, the Shanxi warlord, the model governor, he too signed up with Chiang Kai-shek in this northern expedition. He always knew his limitations and had survived for this long by picking the right friends at the right time. He had some amazing staying power. You know, several years later, he too made the cover of Time magazine, the May 19, 1930 issue, with the caption underneath, China's next president. <laughs> that Henry Luce, he sure loved them warlords. Hubei province was the next to fall at the end of October, 1926. Thanks to two of his most trusted generals, He Yingqin and Zhang Qun, Fu Jian and Zhe Jiang too, both fell into line. You could say the northern expedition was off to a blazing start. Jiang Kai-shek must have been feeling pretty good at this point. No one would dare challenge him politically now. But much of this great success in the first months of the northern expedition had come mostly by way of occupying territory that warlords had either vacated or turned over to Jiang. And although a lot of blood had been spilled, most of these spectacular gains weren't coming so much from winning on the battlefield. With all the deals and mergers and acquisitions Jiang was making with these warlords to build a coalition, the KMT was sort of becoming the party of warlords. Jiang's attention next turned to Nanjing and Shanghai. This is when he decided to move the military headquarters from Wuhan to closer to where the action was, in Nanchang, Jiangxi province. Well, the KMT left, and they didn't like that because they wanted the center of power to remain in their stronghold of Wuhan. They didn't want to sit back and watch Jiang Kai-shek keep grabbing more power and control. So they openly challenged Jiang for his actions and stripped him of all powers. Up to now, militarily at least, everything had gone just fine. And suddenly, this political rift erupted. Jiang Kai-shek, as if he didn't know it already, had his suspicions confirmed that the KMT left was not on his side and were in fact against him, in cahoots with the communists. And the left saw what Jiang Kai-shek was doing, trying to consolidate all this power in his hands of the state, 
and of the party. And to them, he was shaping up to be just another Yenshir Kai. And I'm not sure if it was around now or maybe even earlier, but Chiang Kai-shek had decided that not unless the KMT left split from the communists would he ever accept them. Jiang had let it be known that if Wang Jingwei and his followers in Wuhan on the left didn't purge their ranks of communists and get on the Chiang Kai-shek bus, they'd be run over by it. Then came the famous rambling Stalin telegram that gave all kinds of strange and terribly unrealistic instructions to the communists in China about where to go from here. When Wang Jingwei was shown a copy of these instructions from Stalin, well, he realized that the KMT left was only being used and that the Soviets had much darker and sinister plans as far as this pet Chinese communist project they had going on. In retrospect, we can say, how could anyone not have known? But in 1926, nobody knew what we know now. After a very bloody and costly series of battles with the forces of warlord Sun Chuanfang, on March 22, 1927, NRA forces, led by Bai Chongxi, entered Shanghai. And at this very moment, where communist organizing was showing smashing signs of success all over not only Shanghai, but in Wuhan, Guangzhou, and other cities as well, it was decided that the communists and all their sympathizers needed to be rubbed out. And for all you that remember CHP episode number 55, what followed Bai Chongxi's taking of Shanghai became known as the Shanghai Massacre. Now, prior to the taking of Shanghai, at the end of February 1927, the dogmeat general, Chang Zongchang, had taken his private railway car, harem in tow, and rode in the direction of Shanghai. He brought his expensive coffin with him, just in, just in case, and he blew into Shanghai prior to the arrival of Bai Chongxi's troops. Old 86 was extravagantly feted at a party by Du Yuesheng himself. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall during that evening. Big ears do and the dog meat general. What a night that must have been. But for all his toughness and his reputation, when he faced off against the NRA troops led by the often victorious Guangxi clique Muslim general Bai Chongxi, it wasn't much of a fight. And the dog meat general's troops had grown flabbier and more undisciplined than ever. They fled and did what warlord soldiers always do in these situations. They tried to blend in the crowd and live to fight another day. After the city had been taken, Jiang arrived in Shanghai on March 26, 1927. His first stop was to Big Ears Du Yuesheng's boss, Pak Mark Huang, Huang Jinrong. I didn't mention this, but all this time, in late 1926 and into 1927, there had been massive civic unrest in the most important cities, from Guangzhou to Wuhan to Shanghai and elsewhere. Organized labor was causing all kinds of economic chaos through strikes and boycotts. The communists, with their anti-imperialist, anti-West, anti-Japan, anti-warlord rhetoric, had become emboldened with their success in organizing. And it was Chiang Kai-shek's intention to take them down a few notches. And to do this, Huang Jinrong was just the guy he needed. 
Early morning on April 12, 1927, came the fateful bugle call that signaled the commencement of the Shanghai Massacre, also known as Day One of the Chinese Civil War. There was no turning back after this event. That is, unless one side was threatened or cajoled by outside forces to call a truce. With that nasty bit of business out of the way and the communists driven deep underground, Chiang Kai-shek established a rival government of the Republic of China based in Nanjing, and this government was first chaired by Hu Hanmin. All Wang Jingwei and his allies in Wuhan could do was to make a toothless attempt to expel Jiang from the KMT and charge him with a list of accusations like splitting the party in the wake of the Shanghai Massacre. The Western nations were secretly relieved with this outcome. Order had at last been restored to commerce. All that was left over were the hard feelings. As far as the northern warlords, they were notorious Chinese communist haters too, so they had no issues with what Chiang Kai-shek had carried out with the massacre and the white terror that continued on unabated till it wasn't safe for any communist to come out of hiding. To defend against what they knew was coming, the northern warlords, led by Zhang Zuolin, formed a coalition called the An Guojun, the National Peace Army. Warlords from Zhejiang, Fujian, Shanghai, Nanjing, parts of Anhui, Jiangsu, most of Guangxi, Guangdong, and Sichuan had gone over to the Chiang Kai-shek's side. Well, that sounds like a lot, but it was hardly all of China. In fact, Pretty much, that was most everything south of the Yangtze River. Once again, this mother of all rivers in China was going to have to be crossed for yet another military campaign. And if not for their mutual hatred of leftists and communists, these former warlords and their tenuous new allies, the KMT, they had very little in common politically or ideologically. And up in Beijing, around this very same time, late April 1927, not long after the Shanghai Massacre, Zhang Zolin's men raided the Russian embassy there and walked out with a trove of documents that exposed the Soviets' intentions as far as the Chinese communists went. Nineteen Chinese communists, including one of the ideological founders of the party, Li Dachao, were captured inside the embassy and later executed. Li Dachao was one of Chairman Mao's early mentors at Peking University, an early casualty of the revolution, dead at the age of 37. Almost 38,000 dedicated communists and their supporters ended up losing their lives in the 1927 White Terror. It was a bad year for the CCP by any reckoning. Okay, let's... Hang it up for now and return to our story in a mere couple weeks. We'll pick up in those post-Shanghai Massacre weeks and months and see what happens with the Northern Expedition and beyond. Hey, don't be shy. If you want to show some support for the CHP, please go to patreon.com, sign up, and pledge three bucks a month or more if you want. Lots of exclusive content waiting for you there with more coming all the time, not to mention the Occasional early access to CHP episodes. If you're a PayPal kind of person, go to paypal.me slash China History Podcast. Any spare change, throw it my way. Links, as usual, are in the show notes. 
This is the last time you'll be hearing from the likes of me in 2019. Next year is the year of the rat, 2020. That starts January 25th. My deepest thanks to every one of you who suffered through me all year long. And an eternal thanks to everyone who has listened to the CHP going back to 2010. All you good-looking peoples who stumbled into me along the way. Okay. As far as our little Warlord series, it's getting near the end. Let's try and finish this in ten episodes. Laszlo Montgomery here, signing off, as I have, all year long, from Los Angeles, California. Boy, not like the early days when I was on the run constantly. Please please me, like I please you, and come back one more time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast. Take care, everyone.